Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, but the star and the namesake, that's Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor is so many things, best-selling author, syndicated columnist, farmer, uh, philologist, ancient historian, military historian. You will find so much about him at victorhanson.com. That's his official website. That's the web address. It's called the Blade of Perseus, and we'll talk a little bit about that later on in this podcast. We are recording, and I think it's important to note these, these, these dates because so much is happening, so our listeners can keep things in in perspective. But we are recording early on Saturday morning of October 14th. Victor, who knows before this podcast released is released that what changes will happen in warfare and the dynamics of, of uh, Capitol Hill, et cetera. So anyway, we'll pin, pin that date. And I think, Victor, it would be good uh, in this recording that we get your uh, views on a number of things related to Joe Biden, the leader of the free world. Please don't gag on that, listeners. And we'll get your thoughts on on some of this stuff, Victor, right after these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, I guess the first thing I'd like to get your take on is a week, um, nine days or eight days out from the uh, terrible, uh, horrific attack by Hamas on innocent Israeli citizens, uh, Joe Biden's response, his actions, his uh, absences, his speech. What What's your general take in the last eight uh, days, nine days of how Joe Biden, as leader of the free world, has performed in the face of this uh, terrible event. Well, he, he's a construct. I mean, there is no Joe Biden, the president. It's a 80 year old man who's suffering from cognitive erosion 
and physical incapacity. And he has the Obama people running that came from the Obama administration that run our Mideast policy. They're the ones that want to continue the Iran deal. They're the ones that have this bankrupt idea of a Shia crescent, you know, Iran, Lebanon, Syria, Hezbollah, Hamas, all giving creative tension against the Gulf monarchies in Israel with the United States, the adjudicator, this bankrupt crazy idea. They're the ones that gave the 700 million back to the Palestinians. They're the ones that were warned not to do it by their own State Department because it would go into the hands of Gaza. So that's who's running it. And every once in a while, Joe, you know, he's I mean, if you remember George Bush on 9-11 and the aftermath, he was on two or three times a day and he was he went to ground zero. He put his arms around. That was his finest moment, to tell you the truth. And he put his arms around that fireman, said the whole world's going to hear from you, from us. He, Do you think he did that? No, no, he's he's just. He's just a construct. And so what does that mean in actual terms of policy? It means one of two things. One, when he is not in control, then Anthony Blinken meets with the Turkish foreign minister and says, we can't have this cycle of violence. We have to have a ceasefire the moment Israel is ready to hit Gaza. Or it means the U.S. Uh, affairs, Palestinian affairs office in the uh, State Department issues, let's stop the cycle of violence. By the way, you know, no one would ever say to Ukraine, you know, Mr. Zelensky, this is just tit for tat, 600, 800,000. Let's stop the cycle of violence. They would never do that. So this is what they do. And of course, uh, then somebody around Biden who is not an Obama-ite, a Liz Warren-ite, a Bernie Sanders said, this is really going to hurt my congressional district. I'm going to lose this Senate seat. I'm go This is crazy. And then they they pump him up with oxygen or Adderall, whatever they do. And then he comes out and said, I'm horrified. This is not going to stand. And then Israel, get, Israel gets has to get very excited and get, they thank uh, Biden. And then he goes back to bed. And what's and then this other group takes over. Yang, yang, tit for tat. Warp and woof. That's how it works. And it's just it, that's why we have the Afghanistan mess. That's why we have the Ukraine war. That's why we have the Israeli war, the Hamas war. That's why we have the China threats to Taiwan. That's why we have a, an invasion on our southern border. It's total chaos because the people who want to be in charge are in charge about 80 percent of the time. And they screwed up under Obama. This is their second chance. They can do stuff, and if it goes bad, they blame Biden. If it goes good, they leak to the press that Joe Biden loses his temper. He he bumped into a wall the other day. Right. Uh, an unidentified source at the White House said that he got lost in the uh, West Wing. So th that's what they do. And Joe Biden has no clue of what's going on. But I will say this, that after saying that his support for Israel is unsustainable, is sustainable, that it's unquestionable. We're now in maybe day one of the land invasion, and it's going to be Fallujah on, Fallujah on steroids. I, I saw Fallujah after the Marines went in when I was embedded right. over there, and my God. Uh, it was 2006, and I didn't go in 2007 there. I went to other places, but I'll tell you that 2007, I should say, I did, but 
everybody says it's impossible to root out people in home. They did it. The Marines did. And they they just cut off the city like the Israelis are going to do. And then they checked everybody going out. And then they had suicide bombing prevention. And then they just went house by house. Each one had a hole the size of a car could drive through it from a javelin round. They just blew the stairways out and the side of the wall and trapped those guys upstairs and let them stew for a while. And then they took them out and they had complete air cover. This is before the age of drones, et cetera. But so it's it's doable. But my point is this, is that when they do it, I don't think Joe Biden will stand with them. He's not up to the task. He's going to say, "We this is disproportionate. We've got to end the cycle of violence. We're, we're well, part of his, the rules, rules-based order. Come on now. His history with Israel does not what belies his comment. Uh, you know, I've always been tough, uh, good friend. I mean, he's flipped the bird at Netanyahu for the last three years, just like Obama did, right? Yeah, I mean, they, he's never he has never had Netanyahu to the White House. He's met with him at the UN, I suppose, when Netanyahu came over, or he sent people over to Israel. But he's never had him. He will never have him over. Yeah, and they were behind. They fueled. They gave support to that whole civil unrest, which brings up just to, just for a second what happened, and you know everybody says well. Mossad failed or military intelligence failed or Netanyahu failed. I don't think it was that. I really don't. The last two times I've been to Israel, and I I always think of this, I project back the first time I was there over 20 years ago. It's not even the same country, Jack. It looks looks like San Francisco in its heyday in the 1950s. You go to Haifa, it's just beautiful. And people are out at night eating. You couldn't do that in San Francisco or Washington, D.C. or Baltimore or Portland or downtown Seattle or downtown L.A. There's no homeless and everything works and it's clean and the ports are all sophisticated. They've got desalinization plants. But by the way, they give the water to a lot of the Palestinians on the other side of the green line. So. My point is this. It's never been more prosperous. It's never been more secure. It's never been more confident. It's never been more self-assured as it should be. And at that point, I think a lot of Israelis thought, you know what? We've kind of grown so wealthy and powerful. We've got oil. We've got natural gas. We've got water. Uh, The Iran deal uh, has kind of failed. And even Biden's efforts to reinflate it haven't worked. Um, they're even going to get Robert Malley, that pro-Hamas, pro-Iranian, of dubious uh, character out of the picture. We're talking with the Saudis. It looks like they want to revive the Abraham Accords, which Biden trashed. And, you know, we're letting in 20,000 Gazans. And when they come in, they make a good wage, 10 times higher, maybe $10, $15 an hour. They support another... I don't know, 100, 150,000 people in Gaza. Gaza, we know the charter. We know the 1988 Gaza charter that says that they want to destroy us, kill us, everything. And we know they've said they don't want to become a Singapore. They've said that explicitly, that they don't want to become a Singapore. They, their mission, unlike the Palestinian Authority, which, by the way, I think is the same, basically, but they, at least the, the Palestinian National Assembly or whatever, it doesn't claim 
that it wants to destroy Israel. It wants to have a separate state and take land from Israel. But Hamas never even had that pretension. They never said they wanted to make a successful society. But nevertheless, Israel thought it would. And then into that matrix, there were the Europeans, there were the UN, there were the United States, and they were all telling Israel what to do. And then Israel, like the Western country, said, well, you know, we're at the end of history. So if we have a dispute over the judicial thing, we're going to do, you know, Netanyahu will be our Trump and the dissidents will be the American left. And we'll have a lot of social creative tension. It'll be good. And they had almost a million people out in the streets. There were IDF reservists that refused to go and fight, I guess, for the Netanyahu army rather than the idea. So one of my point is that Israel began to act and uh, assume that it was a typically prosperous Western society. And it is. In fact, I would go further. It was better than a Western society. And that created a sense of collective complacence. And so I think what happened is they thought, well, when the Gazans come over here and they see how successful, you, look, you, you know, you go over this, the Gaza Strip, it looks like North Korea, South Korea compared to Israel. One side is the Salinas Valley and one side is, you know, Detroit, 1960. And and so, and I shouldn't say that, 1975, Detroit. Right, yeah. Maybe now. But right. my point is they they were so successful, they thought, wow, these people are going to come over. They're going to make a lot of money. They're going to see how we do things. And it's going to insidiously uh, cause schisms in the Palestinian, Hamas, Pal- um, Palestinian National Authority uh, paradigm. And when they... They, they see that the geostrategic system is not very favorable to them. Uh, there's not going to be an Iran deal. There's not going to be, there's going to be a detente between the Arabs and Israel. They just, they didn't, I don't think it was in their intention or they didn't quite understand that the more the Hamas people came over or saw our experience Israeli success, the more they said, this came at our expense. They can right. do stuff that we can't do. Why do they have a, a successful society and we don't? And if you were to say to them, because you take all the hundreds of billions of dollars from the Gulf and from the UN, from the Europeans and from the Americans and from deluded Westerners, and you build those tunnels that look like, you know, the cent- the BART system or the Washington Metro, the reinforced con- think of all the cement reinforced concrete conduit to build that labyrinth. That's what they spent it for, just for these Hamas cadre to live as subterranean killers. And if they hadn't done that and they had just invested, they could have made, as a lot of people kept saying, you know, they got the best beach in the world. They could be Singapore. They could be the Emirates. They weren't going to ever do that ever. Yeah. And they wanted to be the one Palestinian uh, radical terrorist group that was premier, kill the most Jews, kill the most Jews barbarically, uh, have no restrictions. And then everybody said, at least they are true killers and they are going to get back from Israel. And I don't think anybody expected that. And that was the breakdown. And I think Israel... And I don't ever believe in giving them advice, but I think they're going to come to a point, and I think they're there now, that when they show magnanimity to 
people in Gaza or the Palestinians, they interpret that as weakness to be exploited and not as kindest kindness to be reciprocated. They just don't. Right. They don't. You know, there's Hesiod, as I said before, I had a famous thing in the works and days where there's two types of envy. There's the good envy, the American envy. You see a Cadillac, you go over to the owner, and I shouldn't say Cadillac, Tesla now, Mercedes, and you say, how'd you do it? How much did it cost? How, how'd you finance it? I got to get one like that. And then there was the old British labor. You go over to the Bentley and no one's looking. You kick in the, you kick in the oh, side yeah. of the car with your foot. Yeah. Well, that's the Palestinian envy. Yeah. It's not emulation. It really is, and it's not competition. It's not emulation. It's the, the delusion that affects us. Uh, George W. Bush. Everybody has, is yearning for freedom, right, and democracy, but they're not. There were high officials in the Bush administration that called a lot of people during the 2006 Sharon turnover, and they had an election. I talked to Fuad, the late Fuad Jami, whom I really respected and liked, and was a Hoover fellow. But I knew him when I was a teacher at the Naval Academy, and I I said, "This is this is crazy," and he said, "It's going to be just like everybody thought. It's going to be one election, one time, and these thugs are going to take over Gaza." And you remember the what? This is a good example. When the Israelis left, they left a sophisticated truck farming. Um, environment they left all the remember those uh, greenhouses and i think an american jewish philanthropist gave i think he inserted 50 million 50 million right and, and a jump start so they could continue as they learn how to export tomatoes and cucumbers and everything to the win winter vegetables to europe etc it didn't take them more than five days to destroy that and because the jews had fingerprints on it they didn't want it they took out the panels they took they just destroyed it I can still remember pictures of them tearing out electrical conduit just to destroy it. Victor, it happens also in South Africa and Rhodesia. You know, you're, you're, there's these great opp opportunities presented it themselves to, but people are motivated by resentment. Yes, it's, it's a Western disease. When as the West gets prosperous and free and secure, there is an arrogance there. They really do believe that they're secular, agnostic. Uh, enlightenment pathway to success that's given them so much will be a model for other people. And what they don't understand is that other people, whether it's in Mexico or whether it's in Latin America or Asia or Africa or the Middle East, they want the fruits of that materialism, right? They do, but they do not want what creates that materialism. They do not want that. They do not want that. Right. And when a person comes to the United States, they have a big choice. They have to have enough character that says, I have accepted a different paradigm that leads to prosperity and security and freedom. And that by necessity means a rejection of my prior paradigm. But this country allows me to bring my clothing, my art, my music, my food, as long as I understand the central principles of Americanism and Westernism. And that takes a lot of character. That's why legal, measured, meritocratic, diverse immigration works. And that, and so I see it all the time. 
I see it all the time here. We bring people from Mexico. We're trucking them in the San Joaquin Valley. And I walk around my farm. I drive down all the rural roads. And what do I see? I see every single day a new refrigerator, a new car. I just saw a whole two new two new cars, just car seats just thrown out in the orchard the other day. And that's what they do in Mexico. And you want to tell them if you come up here, you don't take your refrigerator when it goes out, drive out in the country, look both ways and throw it on the side of the road. You don't go over to somebody's standpipe and try to write gang insignia and spray paint. You don't do that. And you don't do that. And you don't trespass on people's property with an AR-15. So that's what is, is very disturbing. And that's not too bad. That's a learning process. But when you bring people from the Middle East, as we saw in New York, or we see with the Stanford professor or the Harvard professor, and you bring them over here and you don't assimilate them and you require nothing of them, when they become wealthy and prosperous, and worse yet, when you don't f- defend your culture, but you you pro- you transmit a sense of guilt or uncertainty or self-hatred or loathing, then that retards the assimilation integration process. And the result is you get thousands of people on the street of New York who are basically saying the following. I hated where I was in the Middle East. It was a dictatorial violent society. I had no opportunity. I wanted to come to the United States. I did come to the United States and I'm over here now and I'm a minority. I see that now you 67% white people are guilt ridden and you're extending affirmative action to me. And I'm going to take every exact advantage as I can. I'm a victim. Now that's about a week in about two weeks is I hate the United States and about three weeks. I hate the Jews and it's incredible that you see people in the streets of New York, San Francisco, L.A., and they're rooting for a murderous, dictatorial, anti-democratic regime that they all fled from, whether it's in the West Bank or Gaza or Egypt or Syria. It doesn't matter. And they come over here and what do they do? They root for those regimes. And it's got to stop. And the only thing that stops it, the only thing that works, you say no. So we're going to have a, a a moral question, Jack, because out of these two million Gazans are fleeing, there's going to be a half a million that are going to try to get into this country and they're going to be refugees and they're going to be poor and they're going to be demands to let them in because they're going to be leftists and they come in and we're going to see this again and again and again for the next 20 years. The time it takes from one Gazan to leave Gaza as a refugee and come to the United States and become a professor of ethnic studies or decolonialization, lecturing a bunch of Jewish kids that they're apartheid killers is about, I think, about seven years. And and well, let's stop that. We got to say, yeah. you know what? We can't handle all these people. We're going to have legal, diverse, meritocratic immigration you have to earn the right to be an american if you want to be an american you get a diploma and you speak english and you come over legally and then we want you and you're going to assimilate and integrate and accept the american civics program and if you don't we don't we don't need you we don't need them and so uh, and yeah. the american left American left did this and they called it, you know, demography is destiny. And they said, that's a new democratic majority. And then when other people said, we know what you're doing, they said, oh, you're believing in the great replacement, you paranoid, white, shrinking, unfertile, sterile minority, a majority, soon to be a minority. 
So it's, it's, uh, yeah. It's well, mess. Victor, let's, um, you, you're referring by the way, a minute or two ago there to a, a college incident. And I think you also mentioned a Stanford earlier and let's get your, let's talk about that a little bit. And uh, we'll do that right after uh, these important messages. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, first, I'd like to inform our listeners, particularly our new listeners, to uh, the fact that you do have a website, The Blade of Perseus. The web address is victorhanson.com. I encourage everyone to go visit uh, and visit frequently. You will find the postings of Victor's American Greatness um, essays and his syndicated, weekly syndicated columns, links to uh, the archives of these podcasts, uh, your other appearances, uh, links to the new book you have coming out, which, by the way, The End of Everything, How Wars Descend into Annihilation, which sounds that subtitle sounds like it could be pretty timely, Victor. And that's out in in May, but you can pre-order it now. And then you'll also see a series of um, ultra articles. That's what they're under that category. And those are exclusive. Victor writes them exclusively for the website. You can read them if you subscribe. It's $5 uh, to get you in the door, $50 discounted subscription for the full year. Victor's right now is at three, this week, past week, three pieces in the Ultra Series. Uh, Woke hits the wall. So uh, if you're a fan of Victor, I think you are. That's why you listen to this podcast. It's not because of me, it's because of Victor, uh, to, to uh, visit the site and do subscribe. Uh, Victor, um, Stanford University, and we'd like to, I, I'll mention something at the end of the show about immigration, uh, but uh, Stanford University headlines uh, here in the Daily Mail. Stanford lecturer suspended after, quote, ordering Jewish students to raise their hand and sit in the corner in public shaming over the oppression of Palestinians, end quote. Victor, this is like, this is out of, this is so effing illegal i think never mind wrong it just sounds like it's almost criminal and this is happening at one of america's most prestigious colleges and the fact that a lecturer could think he could do that is is an indication of the state of our colleges your thoughts victor well i'm mean, a graduate he, of stanford uh and i work on the campus the right. Stanford's hoover institution i see it every day and uh, this man, Hassan Loggins, is an African-American studies, doesn't have a Ph.D. He's teaching this stuff. He was the mentor, as I understand it, of Colin Kaepernick, who schooled him from being, you know, a person who believed in integration and the success of racial relations in the United States, who was you know, brought up by a white family, is uh, adopted into somebody that hated uh, 
I guess, white people and caused basically tried to bankrupt the NFL and almost succeeded for a while. He was his mentor. And then, of course, that was a recommendation to hire him at Stanford. And so uh, he reflected a lot of things. He's got, uh, you know, like Kendi, we have a lot of African-American scholars that change their names so they can have Islamic fides. That is supposed to signify a rejection of Southern Christian uh, indoctrination that is associated with slavery. And why that is, I don't know, because I think most scholars believe that there were as many or if not more slaves uh, taken from Africa to the Muslim world than there was uh, in the New World, at least in North America. So why you would think that adopting an Arab name or a Muslim name would somehow reflect your disgust for North America because of its slavery in the early years of its creation by, you know, adopting another nomenclature that would, you know, signify to a lot of people that slaves were okay in the Islamic world. And I think you could argue there's still slavery in parts of the Islamic world. So anyway, that was his background. So he takes these students and it's not just enough for him to rail and rail and rail and rail. But he has to ask them to go over to the corner. Now, that's very weird because he's he's the master of his class. And he's saying that they have to go stand over there. Um, This is right out of the 1930s in Nazi Germany because they're Jews, not because what they think, not because of anything, but because he thinks he's asked them to identify. I'm surprised he didn't say anybody in my class who's Jewish has to wear a yellow star. So I don't have to ask you everything. You come in and you sit over in the corner and see how it feels. That was his uh, shtick. And then he asked, apparently, how many people died in the Holocaust? And they said six million. And he said people under decolonization have lost more. He gives no figures. People can give a figure for the Holocaust. There's seven or eight different methodologies that come to the same conclusion. But when he says this many died of decolonization, he doesn't say where, how, anything. And he doesn't doesn't give you any statistics. He just says it. And this is part of the problem with Stanford University. And, you know, I heard a talk the other night by Barry Weiss from the New York Times Thursday night, and she made the point that people have to get to the point where they decide how are they going to look at these schools, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Stanford. And everybody should listen very carefully. I'm not trying to lecture you, but when they went to repertory admissions and they decided that they were not going to reflect, which would have been bad enough, proportional representation, that is, they were going to have quotas, but they don't use the word, but they do use them based on race, racial percentages, but they were going to be repertory. So Stanford let in 20% white people. That's racist. Because if you look at SAT scores and great GPAs, that wouldn't have been true. So they were excluding people on the basis. And they've done that now for one, two, three years in the post-George Floyd era. And then you hire almost one administrator for every student, and you have 70, 80 DEI uh commissars with their staffs, and these these universities do that, then you're going to create the environment that you wanted. Now, the problem with that, Jack, is that they had their own standards. I didn't make them. You didn't make them. They said, to get into Harvard, you need this SAT score. To get into Yale, 
you need this GPA and we're going to evaluate the quality of that high school to compare it to others. You have to write a very enlightened essay. Okay. You need recommendations from, you know, and it was a corrupt system because the old boy network gave money and alumni, but all that, but there was a degree of meritocracy. 60% got in merit and a meritocratic way without a phone call is what I'm saying. And that doesn't exist anymore. And now these universities are not going to have a curriculum that they had in the past because they don't have the students with a proven record of achievement that could take those courses. And in lieu of that, everybody should realize that in lieu of that, they're going to have to do something else. And that something else is hire professors with an MA like this guy on the basis that he indoctrinated Colin Kaepernick and he can go scream and yell. They wouldn't have done anything, Jack. They knew who he was. They knew what he did. But it happened to be the Hamas Jewish Israeli uh, blow up that made people watch. And they saw these Jewish students. They reported it. And then all of a sudden Stanford said, Okay, let me think a minute. The administration. We had the DEI person that hijacked a law professor, a federal judge, and said and allowed the students to say to him that his daughter should be raped, while she, instead of protecting the right of free speech, uh, started screaming in her speech. We had to let her go, put her on leave for a while, then quietly show her the door. And we're dealing with Sam Bankman Freed that was on our campus. Of course, he was on house arrest. But while he was doing that, he was tampering with a jury from the Stanford campus. So he's back in prison. And then his wonderful parents, the avatars, the emissaries, the you name it, of leftism on the Stanford campus. It turns out that they were grifters and the far, the law Professor father wanted a million bucks and they wanted real estate and they were friendly trying to translate transfer, excuse me, assets before the whole Ponzi scheme collapsed. Both of them, the mother and the father. And then, of course, we had Theranos from a Stanford recent graduate that involved a lot of senior, some of them from my own institution, fellows that were on the board that were hawking a fake blood system. It apparently may have sickened a lot of people in its experimental use, but it was an $8 billion Ponzi scheme. And then we had our president that just resigned because he had doctored a paper. He said he didn't, but then he resigned and withdrew the paper. So you decide for yourself. We had the admission scandal. We had the word vocabulary scandal where you weren't to use the word American or immigrant. We had the scandal with the Stanford Internet Observatory. I could go on, but I don't have time. So that university is typical, and they are—they have no credibility. Yeah, and they're still—they're still shiny little pieces of metal that people want to wear, and they're still little resume. Look at me on my resume, Stanford, mm-hmm. Harvard, Yale. But they don't mean anything anymore. They're, they don't mean anything. I—if I see a kid that graduated in electrical engineering, as I said. From Georgia Tech, he's much better than Stanford. If I see a person that has an English degree from Hillsdale or graduated from Thomas Aquinas, I know they got an education they didn't get at Stanford. They right. couldn't get it at Stanford because they can't offer those courses anymore because the student body couldn't take them. And they know that. And they right. are sister. And then when they do this and attack Jewish students, 
they being the university, because this person represents the university, or Harvard won't say anything for four or five days about these students that are siding openly with killers, then the alumni said, you know what? Half the alumni, I'm not going to give them any more money. I'm sick of them. Why hire them? If you, that's like, I go back to that story of the Silicon Valley guy who just said, why hire them? Because they give you trouble as soon as you hire them, they start yelling and whining and screaming and it's unfair. They try to undermine you when they're not that competent. They can't read and write like they used to. They're just a bother. That's going to be the consensus. It gives a wonderful opportunity for new universities and rebranding of old universities to take up that slack. Yeah, I, I, I find if we're going to if we're going to be cool with identifying people like the Stanford lecturer did, well, Let's let's identify all the members of the various college organizations that have stood out in favor of, of Hamas. And yeah, some of these growing number of CEOs have threatened. Yeah, we, we won't know for a few years, Victor, if they make good on their threats, but that they won't hire these. Well, they, these had, a, punks they had a and uh, they may be crap in their pants thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm, my Harvard degree is going to be worthless. I'm not yeah, going to get I a mean, job. They're really angry, aren't they, that all the students that signed these petitions who were expecting their quarter million dollar salaries, uh, a lot of Jewish Americans on Wall Street or in uh, silk stocking, blue chip, Washington, New York law firm said, why would we want to hire these people? They hate us. And so they said, we want the names of all the people who signed those petition. And they wanted everybody's name to be known. That's why they signed them. They wanted to say, here's my name. I'm for Hamas. And as soon as they said, okay, we just want to know how many of you there are. So we don't want to be around you. And that's a free country. We're not doxing you. You put your name out publicly on your own. And now they're screaming murder. This is unfair. And we want to withdraw our names, Jack. So a lot of them want to say, we were misled. We want my $250,000 salary so we can say that we're for Hamas with, from my BMW. That's what they, it's just so corrupt and hypocritical and so old and so tired. God, I walked across the Stanford campus yesterday and I saw some little Palestinian radical booth. And then, God, I got to give credit to the Hoover Institution. They had a memorial service. Condoleezza Rice had a wonderful memorial service for the fallen in, in Israel. And they, she made it very clear that the Hoover Institution's um, sympathies are with the people who were butchered. Right. And I thought that was really good. And but that was the uh, that was the atoll on campus. And the new interim president did suspend. I don't know. I guess that's pending an inquiry. But the question is, who hired that guy and on what basis did they hire him? And we know the right. answer to that. It yeah, this is a, a it was on DEI ideology, and that's what you get. You hire that, you get it. Right. If you just said to all these people, we're going to have a minimum requirement of excellence. Before we hire you, you're going to have the PhD degree if you're in a discipline that requires it, or an MFA in art or music, whatever. And we're going to look at your prior teaching uh, record. We're going to look at your scholarship. We're going to interview you to see if you're inductive, empirical, and we're not going to hire you if just because of your skin color or your ideology or your gender or your sexual orientation. 
and that's that would be that would be the only way they could save it and they could say you know what here's the sat here's the minimum score that's required everybody go study the sat if you want this is the gpa and if you make that you can come and we don't really care who you are we have no interest in your your color your race your politics just come if you make our standards because the standards reflect what we think is necessary to turn out a graduate to be an elite in this society to run it an engineer a scientist a doctor and we can't lower the standards because it will affect you in 10 years so when you have your gallbladder out and somebody graduated from Stanford Medical School who shouldn't have been admitted and took right. courses that were not competitive, he's going to kill you. Yeah. And that's why we do it, not because we're chauvinist. Well, um, Victor, I, having toiled in the vineyards of conservative journalism for over three decades, as you have, my my hope is, um, and I know Washington Examiner tends to, have this sense, but really to, to double down and name names and, you know, who is responsible for who are the people that sign these documents, right? Uh, who are members of these organizations on the right? We have, we, you know, there's a lot of kvetching about things broadly, but I do think we need to target like, even in, in a p- broader political level, who are the members of the Colorado, whatever the hell organization is a, a board commission that are going after that cake baker. You know, we, we need to put names we knew and faces you know what? to, they, to they all this the, madness. I think I said in 2003, I walked, I think it was the fall of 2003. Maybe it was 2004. I walked on campus. I, the Mexifornia had come out and the voice of Aslan student magazine, La Raza. It's, it was an irredentist uh, publication. Basically, its theme was that everything, its motto was everything for brown people, nothing for anyone else and take back the United States. I guess people are. Yeah, I mean, we get eight million people coming across the border because they don't want to live in Mexico. And then the people, their children are saying we want to take back the area that we're fleeing, that we have that are they are fleeing to and give it to the place they're fleeing from. You figure that out. But anyway, (laughs) turn it it into. into Yes. So anyway, but I saw my face in a in a cross a hair. You know, and the background was the cover of Mexifornia. Then there was a telescopic site with my face in it. So I went to the then top administrator and I said, do you condone this? You know what he said? Well, you wrote a controversial book. I said, did you read it? He said, no. I said, it's not. It's a call for integration, intermarriage and assimilation. It has nothing to do with race. Yeah. And uh, the term comes from the prison system where... Hispanic prisoners as a term of pride have called that where they are in Mexifornia. So my point is this, I went over to the, because this gets back to your point, I went over to the La Raza headquarters. You know what it was? It was one professor, and I think it was his nephew and his son who were students. And that was who was doing it, three people. Three people. And I said, would you please not put my name, my face? You can put my cover on. You can say anything I want. But just don't put my face in a telescopic site. And he said, why? And he said, because somebody might want to shoot me if they think that's yeah. okay. Holy crap. And he said, 
get over it. And I said, okay, if you want to. So then I went back to the unnamed. He said, they don't want to take it down. He said, well, you do you want me to call them? Yeah, I want you to call them. So they did. And they didn't take it down, but they stopped. I think they didn't disseminate it so much or something. But my point is, these organizations, Students for the Freedom of Palestine, Harvard, they always put Harvard, Yale, Stanford. Have you noticed that? Right. These people are egalitarian Marxists. They never just say the ad hoc group for freedom of power. They say the Stanford University Islamic Society, the oh. Harvard University Coalition to Free Palestine. That, they want to put those names. They have really bought in to that cachet as snobs and elites that they are. And what you and you're absolutely right. If you would publish the names, you would see that's why they're scared. You know why they're scared? It's not a thousand people. It's about five or six well-heeled elites whose value system is to get ahead at any cost and to use that for the rest of their life as a entree into more money and power. And when you name five people who are the five and only people, the only right. people in the Harvard uh, Islamic group for the liberation of Palestine, or the Yale a coalition to save Palestine, whatever. It's about five wealthy elites and kids. And they do not, they are scared stiff that they're not going to translate that education into money. Yeah. And yeah. influence and prestige. And I think it's great because there, nobody's going to Harvard and saying, give me controversial students so I can dox them. All they're doing is taking what they dox themselves. And they thought it was going to be an upside. They thought, wow, all these hip left-wing uh, law firms, you know, we, we saw what they did during collusion and disinformation. They're all hip. All these uh, stockbrokers gave all this money to BLM. We've taken over these institutions. What they didn't understand was, A, there's a lot of Jewish Americans in there that are left-wing but still don't condone what's going on. Uh, I should, that's yeah. not even, they're angry what's going on. And then there's a lot of middle of the road, a political people that are just aghast at seeing corpses burned and mutilated, yeah. et cetera. By the way, Victor, you just mentioned BLM and uh, continuing the mindset of naming names. Uh, I, th I, you saw this uh, black lives matter of Chicago uh, support logo on on twitter or x what, what it's called now of uh one of those paraglider terrorists and supporting what they were doing and yeah. uh you know it would be good again for conservative journalism or frankly any journalist does it find out well what corporate or what corporations and money bags and philanthropists supported black lives matter chicago which is now praising them I, yeah, the murder I, and butchery yeah i hate it i hate when they do that and they kind of said they got angry and they said, well, maybe we made a mistake, but they didn't really apologize. And they always use that you all, y'all, y'all. These are sophisticated students that want to sound authentic like they're back in the deep south. Y'all, all. they're not y'all. It's just they're northern. Hillary did it. Joe Joe Biden did that, right? Exactly. Like and so did Barack Obama. Barack, yeah, right. And. As Joe Biden's, uh, as Harry Reid said, he can act, he can adopt a black dialect whenever he wants. That's what Harry Reid said, a fellow Democrat. But my point, 
is this is that the hang gliders they were shooting people from the air and then they landed and that was part of the and then where did they land they landed at a rock concert where they knew there'd be a lot of young people without weapons it was a holiday and a lot of women so there was a lot of people to kill a lot of people to rape and blm wants to brag about that so they use that as their logo in their protest and they got millions of dollars from corporations that subsidize that and the three architects of blm have all quit and the the three women are quellars and all of them and remember she gave a talk at harvard i i think it was just four or five years ago where she called for the destruction of israel so it was a, always an anti-semitic anti-israel anti-jewish anti-white racist grifting organization and after ferguson after blm all of these corporations thought you know what i remember the al sharpton jesse jackson mode of the 90s you know operation push rainbow coalition al sharpton it was hey toyota do you want to be called a racist and boycotted by left-wing liberals then you better give us a big grant and that's what they did and that's what blm they thought well we have to update that mechanism so we're going to put a black panther 60s veneer onto an 80s grifting operation call it black lives matter and then wait for an iconic moment like you know george floyd or ferguson or you name it and then we can really go to town and get a lot of money and that's what they did and now we learned that there was no accounting that the architects of this scam took off with the money they bought three or four homes each we learned that in addition to all of that that uh, professor kendi who was uh, grifting off the fumes of blm got 50 million dollars plus for his anti-racism center It'd be like Victor Hansen has a pro-agrarian uh, conservative center out on his farm. Can you give me $50 million? Yeah. And I will make it a center to publish and stuff. I think I could publish more than the entire anti-racism because I think they only published two papers. In a week, you publish more than, yeah. they, than they've done in five years. Or yeah, I mean, I would, at least if I did that, I would call the donors every week and say, here's your money. Here's what we're doing with it. Right. And I would try to make sure that everybody gets it, is productive. And is and if they weren't productive and didn't do what the donors thought they were going to do, they were going to be gone. But yeah. he got a pass. And so the whole thing crumbled down. BLM has got like, put it this way, the reputation of Stanford and Harvard and Yale and Columbia within a few years will be like BLM and Antifa. It really will. And I say that without any exaggeration. The person that really accused Scott Atlas and by association me was the person at Stanford, a professor of English who founded Stanford and Antifa. All you need to know. Yeah. Well, Victor, we have uh, one more topic to bring up. And uh, actually, I wanted to get into some Biden family weirdness, but maybe we can save that for another time, because uh, I would think our listeners would like to hear your thoughts about John Kirby uh, defending. Well, it's his boss, Joe Biden, but this um, uh, preference of climate change over the potential of a nuclear holocaust. I just don't get it. Um, But we'll get your take on this, Victor, right after these 
final important messages. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, I hope I'm, I'll set this up quickly. Biden, not that long ago, maybe within the last month, gave some speech and, of course, pr- pressing the preeminence of climate change as the existential issue of our time. And he's saying this, by the way, on the side is, of Sullivan. I can't remember the guy's first name. The head, you know, the national security guy for the administration is bragging about just days before the S hit the fan about the greatest moment of peace right now in the Middle East, thanks to the Biden administration. Anyway, Hamas attacks and John Kirby goes on to Fox and he's questioned about about. The, the the you know the positioning of the administration and he def- I mean, it's kind of shocking especially a guy from the military uh, no climate change is the most existential issue of our time he didn't say these words but for all effect was it outranks nuclear holocaust yeah you know the the the, the contention the, the the war in the Middle East who knows I think everyone's fear Victor is this might spill into something truly horrific uh, and global, uh, but it's not as important to the Biden administration as climate change. Yes. Well, it's, it's insane. He's just a megaphone for the policy that he's right. That's the policy. That's what they believe. And who is he? I remember he's I can remember when he was the spokesperson for remember Chuck Hagel. He was kind of a John McCain duplicate. Sure. Drone. Yeah, they were kind Nebraska. of like the new yeah. Rhino Republican Party, right? And he was a kind of a spokesman. He was always a spokesman. I think after a very brief, you know, naval career, he transcended into a naval spokesman, and then he was a John right. McCain or Hegel spokesman, and then he went into the Obama administration as a spokesman, and then he's back again as a spokesman. I wonder what the medal he gets for that is. It must be shaped like a microphone or something. And but, yeah, you know, that, that's his career. If it's Benghazi and he's going to speak for Hillary Clinton, then it was a pre-planned terrorist. Uh, it was a um, pre-planned. And when people said this is a pre-planned terrorist raid, he said, no, it's not. It's a spontaneous outburst over video. And we were not warned about it. And just whatever the, the party line is, he says it. And he doesn't really worry. He, he knows right now that. If the world gets very tense and it very well maybe if Ukraine has to or thinks it has to conduct operations inside Russia and Taiwan thinks that we are tied down with Ukraine and maybe in the Middle East and with our border and North Korea starts to act up and there is a nuclear exchange somewhere, he knows that that is going to kill more people and more dangerous than climate change. He knows that. And he can't say anything else because he's an ideologue. It'd be like if you were in the Soviet Union 
1975 and you knew the whole system didn't work and you work for Pravda, what would you do? You would just mouth that. He's also said that, you know, LGBTQ is a central element of U.S. foreign policy. And you want to say to John Kirby, how did that work out? You had an, you had, did have the pride flag over the embassy, but you skedaddled and left $50 billion in weapons, many of which I think have been sold at some of the reports to the Palestinians in um, Gaza. Wow. So wow. I don't believe anything he says. I feel kind of sorry for him because what usually happens is when Corinne Pier- Jean-Pierre gets caught lying too much in a week, then suddenly they kind of shift stuff for him to do because he's a more accomplished dissembler, right. disassembler. And then he has to come in and, and he's, you know, he's, he's, I don't know what to say about him. He just says things that aren't true because well, his administration tells him to say things that are not true because the administration knows that the border is not secure. They right. know they know that they gave money, psychological support to Iran and to radical Palestinians, and that blew up in their faces. They know that Joe Biden said he wouldn't react in Afghanistan if it was a minor incursion. They know that he didn't do anything about Russian hacking. They know that, and they know what we did in Afghanistan, and they know that we skedaddled, and we know we called a righteous strike, killing 13 civilians. We know what we left behind. We know why the world is up in chaos, and they can't say that. That's not their job to say it, but that doesn't require us to believe it or even to listen to it. And, you know, you get to a place in the Soviet Union. I had a reader that wrote me this today that we are reaching the point where the people talking to us know they're lying and we know they're lying and they know that we know they're lying. (laughs) <laughs> that nails it. Yeah. Yeah. And then we continue right. uh, pro forma. So because none of them have the shame to uh, to design. say I'm lying and then go find another career as a beet farmer or nothing. I shouldn't. What's really interesting, there is one little wrinkle to all the line. And that is I was looking the other day at a lot of the former neoconservatives that have endorsed Biden and gone all left. You know what I mean? I, I think I know some of them. Yes. yes. Mona Chair and uh, Jennifer Rubin, especially Bill Chris. That, that's very contortionist what they have to do now, because any sane person in Israel, they can't say anything because Bill uh, Biden has expressed uh, rhetorical support. But if you look at the six billion dollars, they were so eager to give Iran and to, you know, kind of institutionalize the value of hostage taking and dropping the sanctions and giving the 700 million to the Palestinians and basically reviving the United Nations refugee for relief for Palestine and pressuring Israel. They know that it caused all this stuff. And yet they can't say that because they voted this guy in and they voted this whole anti-Semitic left anti Israel left. And so they'll say things like, well, this is these people are hypocritical. Now they're they're supporting Israel. That's good. But they don't support us on Ukraine. They try to do anything to 
shift the the um, attention. And that's not something that anybody should mention right now, because when you look at this, you want to ask yourself, and I, I support giving Ukraine, you know, billions of dollars to repel aggression. Putin had no right to go in there. Any difference they had, they could have discussed it. And there were, and they are sending missiles in to kill people. It's horrible. But when you are going to have to arm them and give them the wherewithal to sink Russian Black Sea fleet or depots or training uh, areas or logistical centers inside Russia, then we've never done that. As I said to Sammy, in 80 years of uh, proxy wars, we've never given the wherewithal to a third party to attack the homeland of one of our superpower nuclear rivals. So it's dangerous. And if you're all I ask is some symmetry. If you're going to tell if you're Anthony Blinken or you're the U.S. State Department, Palestinian affairs, and you tell Israel that they cannot respond and you want to cease fire, then you better tell Ukraine that, too. If right. you want to help Israel, then you don't take 250,000 U.S. shells designed to aid them in times of crisis and send them to Ukraine when they go through that in one month. And the Europeans are sitting there and they haven't even given that much to them. So they don't mention Ukraine is not a good argument to say you're hypocritical because you do not want to support offensive operations against a nuclear power, Russia. But you do want to support them against Hamas. Doesn't mean that Russia is not capable of doing what Hamas is. It's just. This is a huge war with a nuclear power, and we're not quite there yet. And, you know, Russia sends missiles in there, and it's horrible, and people kill prisoners and all of that. But so far, the Russian army hasn't come in and killed babies and burned people and then had crowds in the West saying, this is wonderful. Yeah. And I saw, and maybe well, I saw some article today in the Daily Mail. You know that that poor old uh, uh, lady, the Jewish lady, and uh, who was taken. But, yes. You know, they had, and there were some some places in Gaza, some like pizza parlors, were using her as an advertisement to sell pizza. I mean, what kind of barbarity mindset, deep hatred is there? I know the Israelis went in and leveled the place, the pizza parlor, you know, like good for them, but uh, they lie. uh, They lie. I I was listening to Fox interview the people on the street and they said there was no civilian, there was no civilian casualties. None. We don't do that. And there is some, there is now a, uh, revision about the 40 babies that were beheaded because the soldier or two who said that they can't find. And the, there's no, there's no question that babies were murdered and burned, but because of that, now people who are on the street saying, see, it's all a lie. Yeah. Let's get our facts straight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's that it's, they're in complete denial. They do not want to accept that yeah. because to accept that means that I'm on the streets of New York applauding people who go into innocent civilians' homes, shoot them, desecrate their bodies, rape them. And uh, I do support that. That's what they do. They do support that, but they can't say they support that. So they just say it's all a lie. And it's very, you know, it's, it's different than Germany. The German civilians knew 
more or less what the German army was doing in Russia. And they knew about Dachau was right in, you know, near Mach, uh, Munich, even Munich, though it right. wasn't a, a full-fledged death camp with the ability to kill like Auschwitz or Birkenau and that. But they knew. So they either said they didn't know or they couldn't do anything about it, but they opposed it. But this is different. The Gossens don't make that effort. Right. They don't say, uh, I don't know what happened. Those guys are heroes in Gaza that did that. Yeah. They're mar- martyrs. And, and they don't say, well, I would have stopped it had I known. No, if they had known, they would have joined. They would have said, oh, you're going into Israel to kill babies? Can I come? That would yeah. be the attitude. And so there yeah. is something that's strange because Hamas threw the Palestinian Authority out. They've been there for since 2006. They steal all the aid and use it for themselves, both for their own comfort and then their labyrinth of hell underneath the city of Gaza City and the tunnels. That's their whole GDP. And that's why everybody says, well, wait a minute. We gave them a trillion dollars the last 20 years. Where did it go? Well, it went to look at those tunnels. That's where it went. Yeah. The whole underground. Or probably Swiss bank accounts, too. Swiss bank as well, yeah. as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the people knew what was going on. Everybody said, well, they couldn't stop. I saw captives on videos that were released, not by Israel, but by sympathetic people in the Middle East, and they were desecrating and spitting and kicking dead Israeli soldiers and a young woman that was half naked. And I didn't see anybody in the crowd that was repelled. Victor, it might be interesting, and we're we're, uh, at the end of the uh, podcast here, but um, at some point you write, or we talk about on a future podcast, historically, what groups really detest others? What people? Because uh, I wonder historically just how, who, what other um, uh, ethnic groups compare to the to these uh, Palestinians and the hate, pure hatred for other oh, can, other yeah. people. And they may rank at the top of the top of the list in, in history. They're right, up the, they're right up there with the Houthis. What they did to the Tutsis. The tuts- oh yeah. The oh tuts- my gosh. Yeah. 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 There. They have yeah. adopted a lot of the same tactics. They're up there with Turkey and the Armenians. Um, you know, Armenians were kind of similar in the sense that they were the only Christian. I mean, in terms of religion, they were a Christian, just as Israel is a Jewish atoll. They were a Christian landlocked atoll surrounded by Turkic tribes. And there were two two genocides against the Armenians. And they did many of the same things. There were beheadings, there were mutilations, and they, they often just marched them out in the desert and said, see you, no water, let them die. And... The same thing with Greeks. If you look at the history of the Ottoman Empire, I don't even have to quote what they did on May 29th, 1453, but in the years subsequent, and you look at what they did in 1921, 22, 23, on the coast of Turkey, especially at Old Smyrna, uh, that was pretty... And what they did in Greece during... 400 years of occupation. So that hatred and today Erdogan, I mean, today they just, ex- they just ethnically cleansed a hundred thousand. 
Armenians from disputed right. territory. And right. there's a real danger as we talk that drunk on victory that these surrogates of Turkey are going to go in and slice off more land of inside Armenia. And nobody's helping them. I mean, Armenia used to turn to Russia, but Russia's, you know, because it was orthodox. And Russia is now in league with Turkey and it's bogged down in Ukraine. So they have no patron at all to stop this. And it's a very yeah. small population. And the expatriate community has been assimilated in a lot. So there's not a lot of first or second generation Armenians anymore that remember what happened and are, have the wherewithal to send to them. So they're kind of on their own. Yeah. And the same thing is scary about Greece. You know, Greece's population has one of the lowest fertility rates. And yet it's a far flung country. They got 50,000 square miles and they have all these Aegean islands uh, right on the coast of Turkey. And you've got a guy, an Islamicist, Ottomanist president who said, quote, you know, that you're going to wake up one day and missiles are going to be falling on you from Turkey in Athens. Right. And, and so there are these hot spots around the world. Iran is another one. If Iran gets the if Iran gets the bomb, I think it's they will use it. I really do believe they will use it. And you can see what happened uh, in southern Israel is what they want everywhere in Israel. And so well, and here, too, probably. Yes. No and problem you know what, I, I don't quite understand one thing else. I'll finish today and shut up. I don't understand this, that here is this monster Vladimir Putin sitting on 6,500 to 7,000 nuclear weapons. And for the last two years, he's been saying, if you keep this up, well, his surrogates are saying it. Now he's saying it. We have the right to use nuclear weapons. We're going to use, we're going to do things you won't believe. And we say, liar, liar, pants on fire, more boilerplate, ha, ha, ha. We're going to send a drone into the Kremlin. We're going to sink their biggest ship. Yes. But at some point, that is a real danger. But when you hear Iran that doesn't yet apparently have a deliverable nuclear weapon and it threatens just like Putin, everybody takes it serious. Oh, my God, we can't do that. Oh, my God, they might use it. Well, yeah, they might use it. And yeah, Putin might use it. But why would you discount Putin, who has a lot more capability than Iran, and you're terrified of dealing with Iran? It doesn't make any sense. It, they're both killers. One has a lot more killing power, but yet you keep pushing it and you discount it and you think it's impossible to occur. And the other doesn't have the power yet, but you say it's very likely and it's too messy and we would never do that. So I don't I don't understand it. I really don't. Well, well Victor, you've uh, shared your usual Big uh, slice of wisdom here today. We appreciate that and uh, appreciate our listeners for doing just that listening, no matter what platform you do listen on those who are on uh, catch the show on iTunes and Apple can rate the show and leave uh, comments. You can, some people also leave comments on your website, victorhanson.com. Uh, here's, here's a, uh, Here's two, two quickies. One, I, I, by the way, if our listeners have not yet listened to this special episode that Victor and Sammy did uh, right, uh, about a week ago, 
regarding the outbreak of the war, please do listen. It's called A Hard Rain Will Fall. And David uh, commented on this, on that episode on your website, Victor, and he wrote, Outstanding, out friggin' standing. If a candidate was to say that VDH would be his, her consigliere, and would use his suggestions first, that would be enough to get my vote, maybe even campaign money. Thank you, David. And then another comment, this is from uh, iTunes. This is uh, from Deer12343. Love this guy. So refreshing to hear the truth with the wisdom of history behind it. Thanks for your precise and timely comments. I agree with you just about 100%. I'm not looking for confirmation bias. I'm looking for another soul seeing the same things I'm seeing and coming to the same conclusion. And the conclusions are not nice and comfy. We are in a world of hurt right now. That's dear one, two, three, four, three. Thank you for that. Thanks, David. Thanks everyone else. Leave comment that Victor, thank you. Hey, Oh yeah. Jack Fowler writes civil thoughts for the center for civil society for uh, amphil you can sign up for it at civilthoughts.com free weekly email newsletter of about a dozen or so recommended articles i've come across in the previous week do check that out check out victorhanson.com thanks victor and thanks everyone we will be back soon with another episode of the victor davis hansen show bye bye thank you everybody for listening see you next time 